Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Hi, James here. I just want to start with a slight apology. I used a different microphone on today's recording from normal, and it did not go very well. But rather than re-recording the whole thing and delaying getting this podcast out and potentially losing out on your time and wasting everyone's time as I am sort of now, we thought we'd press on. I've done my best to fix it in post-production, but I apologise if there are a few bits that sound a bit ropey. I promise it's not deliberate. Anyway, on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Love Tennis podcast. We are much less hungover than last week, or at least I am. I can't speak for the others. Uh, we've got loads to talk about, despite the fact there's actually not a huge amount of tennis going on, but that doesn't mean there isn't lots to discuss. Uh, Olymp- Olympics chaos, Djokovic commits, Goff test positive, and Federer sits out with a sore knee or foot or certainly something. Uh, we'll decide whether that means it's it for him or what it actually means for Federer and for tennis. Uh, a wild clay court season has appeared. Uh, quite the ruse in Hamburg. Anyone for that joke? No, maybe. Uh, is Philip Karinovic the new Felix Auger Aliassime? And the French Open breakout stars uh, show us that it wasn't just a fluke in Paris. And we'll also have two big debates. Uh, is grass court tennis worth the effort? 69.7% of listeners think we should have more of it. I can tell you one listener who doesn't think we should have more of it. Um, although I don't know how much he listens. And is it time to drop the rules banning on court coaching? Calvin has opinions on both, you'll be surprised to hear. Um, so let's meet the men who uh, will argue for their lives about even the smallest minutiae of sport. Uh, in the red corner is Calvin Betton, tennis coach, and I believe wounded soldier. Yeah, both of those. Uh, <laughs> <I have laughs> briefly, briefly, what happened to your leg, Calvin? Um, I have injured, I have torn my calf, um, apparently somewhere between a grade two and a grade three tear that'll put me out of running action for about six to eight weeks. I mean, that, I mean, that's another, another person out of the Olympics, isn't it? That's the biggest. Well, player, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, especially seen as just so unlucky because there was a spot opened up on the tennis team. Um, and unfortunately they've had to downgrade for Liam Brody. 
Ah, well, there you go. It happens to the best of us. Uh, and in the blue corner, probably the only man more injured than Calvin Bethel, although that might not be the case at present, is Metro.co.uk's man of glass, George Belshaw, who, disappointingly, isn't... I sort of thought you being a man of fairer complexion and it having been a heat wave, I thought you'd turn up like a tomato today. No, I'm my usual bronze god set. <laughs> Just um, one big freckle. Just a quick one for Calvin. What what grade tear did Djokovic have when he won the Australian Open? Didn't seem to keep him out. <laughs> I don't know, but I was told that I was I was informed that of four grades of tear. Um, <laughs> grade one is um, just a slight tear that you don't really notice. Two and three is what I've got, and four is your calf is basically in two pieces. Um, so I assume, according to certain people on Twitter, that Djokovic had a four, but somehow. <laughs> battled through it uh, in reality it's probably more like a 0. 0.3 or well you could like see that. the hole you could see the the hole in his body where yeah, his abs are supposed a phenomenal to be. man and athlete remarkable victory um as always anyway we shouldn't spend too long talking about Nova Djokovic he's barely on the list although he is the first name on my running order uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show the Olympics tennis tournament is um well struggling and it's not even really started yet the one boon it has is that the world number one, Novak Djokovic, has committed uh, to going. He did so in a video call with a small Japanese boy, um, which, to be fair, I thought was quite sweet. Um, I, I, I don't always give Djokovic credit for this stuff, and I do find it a bit like saccharin, but it was a nice way to sort of make it something different. Uh, and, it, and frankly, it was just good to hear uh, a tennis player, George, telling us that they were going to the Olympics rather than that they weren't. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we kind of spoke about this last week and I'd said I'd, be, I'd still be quite surprised if Novak pulled out, given the kind of history um, and everything else he can achieve this year. Um, this is a title he has genuinely been preparing for for two years. Like, Let's not exaggerate about that. He went to Tokyo to get used to conditions in 2019, won a title there, has made no secret this is something it want, he wants. He's also left the last Olympics in tears, probably the most devastated he's ever been after a result. So I think he's very, very motivated. And on top of that, now is in a position to do a golden slam. So, yeah, I, I wasn't greatly surprised. Um, and as you say, yeah, it's important because while I think some of the guy, it, the men's side, a few of the players who've pulled out, I, I don't really see as threats to Djokovic on a hard court now. I mean, Rafa not playing, I don't really see as a big issue as to whether it's a strong field for Djokovic even Federer now given his injury problems I wouldn't say it's a big issue I, I still think his biggest threats are there in Sissipas, Zverev, Medvedev I think they're the three players who are best equipped to beat him in best of three on a hard court so I, I don't think it'll be as straightforward and I still see him most vulnerable here um, in terms of completing the Golden Slam purely because it's best of three until the final and those guys I mentioned are certainly capable of winning a best of three match against him. Yeah, just to kind of run down the, the top 20 men's players who aren't going, uh, Rafa Nadal, Dominic Team, Federer, Matteo Berrettini, who pulled out this week with a thigh injury, we'll come back to that. Um, Roberto Batista Agut, David Goffin, Denis Shapovalov, Kasper Ruud, Milos Ranić, Christian Garin, who's top 20 apparently, and Grigor Dimitrov. Um, it, it sort of leaves, as you mentioned there, George, yes, Medvedev, yes, Sissipas, yes, Zverev, also Andrei Rublev, who I know we don't see as a threat for Djokovic, but still is a decent top 10 player. Um, I suppose it now has the timbre of a, a 
decent 500. Is that where we kind of put that, Calvin, given given the field? Yeah, I guess so. Because, as George said, on a hard court, um, well, Federer hasn't played in ages on one, and Nadal isn't the threat. The real threat, I mean, is, is Medvedev. Mm. On US-type hard courts, Medvedev is, I'd say, he's equal of Djokovic over the last two years. Um, he had his number in... Australia, obviously, and it's a bit, it's a bit of a rough draw for uh, Medvedev in that he's the only one who will have to play him over five sets because he'll be seeded two. Yeah. Um, if he gets there, but yeah, he's. I'd, I'd say yeah, you're probably right. It's probably a decent, you know, middle of the road five hundred probably. It's quite a nice format that with the the five sets in the final. I mean, I know that that's what the Masters events or certainly some of them used to be. I mean. Do we do we like that format, or would we have five sets in at the semis, or, or just sack it up altogether? I think you've either got to go all the way through or just the final. I don't see the point in doing it in the semis. Um, it used to work quite well. I don't know why they stopped doing it. The Masters, I suppose, for US TV. Um, I flip and change though on on whether we need whether best of five is a good idea. I think I think you have to keep them at the um, the slams probably. Mm. Maybe you could look at second week or something, but. Um, I get why in the early weeks they're kind of a bit, it's a bit tedious, but yeah, I don't mind it too much. I do think that tennis probably needs to look at different ways of scoring or different formats like cricket has done, um, as opposed to just the two standard formats. But yeah. Yeah, I think one reason it was kind of discontinued in the main on the tour was how, how many big events were kind of running into each other. So you'd have guys playing finals. Uh, like best of five sets at the end of a whole best of three week and then having to play the next day in a different city or something um, when the scheduling wasn't quite right. So I think that that was kind of the main reason it was kind of chucked away. But I know, I think Federer is quite a big advocate for it coming back, but I don't know. I'm quite happy it's sticking in the slams and nowhere else really. Yeah, let's not get bogged down in the best of five <laughs> debate. I mean, that's definitely something we can save for, a, <laughs> <laughs> save for a, a quiet day. Um, just to list a few more players who are out, um, Dan Evans, Coco Goff have both tested positive for COVID. Goff, and a, a big a big blow, obviously. Uh, Andrescu, Kerber, Azarenka. As we mentioned, Roger Federer out as well. Um, says he suffered a, a setback with his knee injury. I mean, the setback, frankly, was getting bageled by Hubert Hurkacz um, on his way out of Wimbledon. He, he was nowhere near the player. I thought it was interesting that after that match, he said, I'm... I'm simply not a good enough player at the moment, or words to that effect. I actually can't remember the precise words he, he used, but that was what he meant. Um, I mean, George, are you surprised? Uh, and actually, how serious, I suppose, do we think the setback could be? Mm, I don't think... I, I'm not convinced there's a problem. That's my honest assessment. I, I said last week, there's no way he's going to this Olympics. Absolutely yeah. no way. Like, you heard Novak complaining about a stringer. For Federer not being able to take his wife kids with him is a serious serious issue at this stage in his career it's, it was strongly rumoured that's why he didn't go to Australia even though he could have been ready to play that, I don't know how true that is but well, I think... sorry, it was more than a rumour, like one of the tournament organisers literally said yeah. it, didn't they? Yeah, exactly so yeah, I, I wasn't surprised and to be honest when he said there's a setback and I'll be back later in the summer, realistically what does he mean? Just the US Open, because how's he going to be ready to play best of five sets like two or three weeks later if he's not ready to do that now? I, I, ju I just, I don't particularly buy it, to be honest. I think it's quite a convenient excuse. And maybe there is a slight setback and I'm being overly negative, but I think St. Roger hates to offend for no reason, has big sponsors, obviously in terms of Uniqlo. I really think he didn't fancy it. And 
It's just conveniently, there may be a slight issue, but I don't think it's anything to be worried about. Traditionally, he would play, I guess, the Canadian tournament and then Cincinnati in the run-up to the US Open. Calvin, I think we assume that he's not going to play either of those, but then he's going to come in very cold and very rusty, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's played a strange schedule, hasn't he? Um, I don't know whether he will play those, actually. You'd think he might. Um, I wouldn't say, because he's, he's played such a strange schedule. And what's he played this year? Has he played just three events? Uh, yeah, he played, well, he played in Doha uh, and then lost to Basilashvili, Geneva on the clay, and yeah. Halla. They're the only non-Grand Slam events yeah. he's played. Four events then, yeah. Um, yeah, in Wimbledon, yeah, just four events. It, it's tough, isn't it, to really get a handle on where he's at, what his schedule will be. Um, I don't think anyone really. I don't think even know if he knows. I think that's what was what what I took from it around Wimbledon was that it, I think he has like he has been pretty pretty up upfront about it. I don't think he knows where he's at. So, mm. and I, as we discussed before with Murray, with that level of player where you can always get a wild card into somewhere, you don't have to really decide what your schedule is until about two days before the tournament starts. So Yeah, exactly. Um, we've always talked about Roger and the Olympics and like for the last two or three years, really, we've, we've talked about how the Olympics is the one thing that he, he's missing and that you know, he really wants to target that, that singles gold medal and how it's been a big part of the grand plan. Now that he's not going to get that, I, I feel like, uh, as you say, Calvin, yeah, he is in no man's land. But I also feel like we're a bit in no man's land because all of a sudden we don't have something to hold him to, to pin him to. You know, he could retire at the end of this year. He could retire at the end of 2024 at this point. It's quite hard to say, isn't it, George? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I, I think there's a convenience degree of him pulling out of this tournament in terms of I didn't believe he was going to go as soon as those restrictions came in. But Equally, I wouldn't be sure he'll make the US Open. And equally, I wouldn't be surprised if he just thought, I actually can't do this anymore and goes to play the Labour Cup and that's his farewell. I mean, I, th I think he'll just stop. And this is why it's kind of a bit hard to predict. I mean, obviously, on the one hand, you don't really want to leave Wimbledon, your most successful slam, having been bageled in the final set. But on the other, as Tim Henman always says, you know, there's just a point you realise where Oh, oh bloody hell! I can't, I can't do this anymore. I actually can't compete with them. And well, like I think Roddick was saying, it, that came at the Olympics when he played Djokovic and just got absolutely battered. He just knew there's no point. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm less and less confident he's going to make it back to Wimbledon next year. I, I, and who knows? It's just so hard to tell how big an issue it is. I think the fact he says he'll be back in the summer suggests to me it's not that serious. If, if that's his genuine target. Um, but but we shall see. I, I always remember somebody said, it was somebody in his team, I don't know whether it was Lubacic or Severin Luthi or somebody, who said that when he does go, he, he won't do like a retirement tour and that kind of thing. He'll just say he's finished. So when he left Wimbledon, I thought he left Wimbledon quite abruptly when he lost to Hercatch. There was no sort of waving to the crowd or anything or a big ceremony. He just walked off. And initially that made me think, yeah, he's planning on coming back next year where he'll do all that kind of stuff. But then I remembered that was somebody said that he'll, he will just announce he's done. Um, he, he won't do the the leaving tour, if you will. Mm. It's it's difficult to to pin him down, isn't it? Because we don't have well, we don't have any precedent for it, really. Yeah, I, I still think there might be a a non ATP leaving tour though. 
where there's a big exhibition tour, if that makes sense. Well, um, like I suppose a few matches for Africa and stuff. You know, it, it, credit to him, he he does he has raised a lot of money for charity, and surely if he's done with professional tennis, he could raise a heck of a lot more doing that. I think I think he'll keep playing the Labour Cup as well, won't he? Although the feeling always was that he'll keep playing the Labour Cup for a few years after he retires. But I think that was kind of when he was like 35. Mm. But he's not going to keep playing the Labour Cup when he's like 48. He's not going to be beating players in that level. The other the other side to this debate is that it's actually a, not a great financial move to retire. There's actually no rush for him to retire. Like I, I'm, I think I think I'm right in saying that Sampras actually retired. Everyone thinks he retired at the U.S. Open, but he didn't actually officially retire for another year later um, because he kind of has like contractual deals that keeps him, yeah, keeps him earning a lot of money and. Uh, the interesting thing, or mildly interesting from a business perspective this summer, is that I don't know if you've just seen the Forbes rich list this year for the athletes, but Conor McGregor's topped it this year by selling um, part of his whiskey business. He sold mm-hmm. his stake in that. Upper 12. Yeah. Federer's got a stake in this Swiss uh, shoe company that you might remember him launching last year. I don't know how big the stake mm-hmm. is, but that's being uh, listed in autumn uh, and valued at $5 billion or something. So Federer really could be going on to break all sorts of like record athlete uh, financial records. And he's obviously got these deals with Uniqlo, et cetera. So, you know, I think there is a bit of a financial incentive to keep skin in the game, even if it's not as uh, thick as before. I, I was just um, having a little look there. You mentioned Sampras, and I was thinking about Federer, whether that six up to Hercats would be his last set. And I, I mean, I'm sure that Calvin will remember what Pete Sampras's last match at Wimbledon was? Was I remember the match? Can't remember who he lost to though. Well, I don't think many people will remember the name George Bastel, uh, who was a Swiss lucky loser uh, who beat him in five sets, having been two sets up and then pulled back to 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 two all, and then beat him in the decider. It's mad though, isn't it? How like that's only one in inverted commas generation away, but. I think, what was Sanford's when he retired? Was he like 31? Well, that was 2002, and he was born in, what, 1971? So, yeah, he was, he was 31. I, yeah, mean, I guess it, maybe 32, if you want to say he yeah, retired the next But then day. we see that as being like, you know, and every, when he retired, everyone was like, yeah, that's about right. And it's yeah. like now we're in this generation where, like, 32, you're realistically winning another seven or eight slams mm. if you're one of the best players in the world after that. This, this Bastel might be quite unmemorable, but this is the second time I've see this name this month I think I'm pretty sure Murray beat him in his first grand Wimbledon win or something along he was the time. first player to be beaten by Andy Murray in the main draw of a Grand Slam tournament you're yeah. absolutely right I do want to talk about the women's uh, Olympics as well because while the men's draw does look a bit like a 500 the women's draw looks pretty strong quite frankly I mean you know I say that with kind of hesitancy because by the time this podcast comes out half of them could have got COVID or withdrawn but you know the ones who have pulled out Azarenka, Andreescu and Kerber they're not names that we necessarily were that excited about anyway I know we've got high hopes for Bianca Andreescu but she's a long way away from having won big matches uh, the, the running list still includes Ash Barty, Naomi Osaka, Arena Sabalenka, Karolina Pliskova, Petra Kvitova, Maria Sakari, Iga Shontek, Elena Rybakina, Garbina Muguruza and Alina Svitolina. Uh, we're obviously delighted to see Naomi Osaka back in action as I think we thought she would be. I believe her documentary has come out 
uh, this week, George. Have you managed to get your eyes on it yet? I have not. I've not watched it. Um, but yes, it's great to see her back. Again, no surprise to see her back because this is a hugely, uh, uh, huge financial incentive for her, shall we say, to play this tournament. Um, also emotional ones. Come on. Emotional. I mean, let's not be yeah, overly cynical. It's a home no. Olympics. No. Um, but there's just no way she was ever going to miss this. Um, mm. And on a hard court, like Djokovic, she turned up in 2019 to try and win this title. That must be the strongest ever uh, simultaneous winners Tokyo Opens ever had for Novak and Osaka. Um, she, she, she'll be desperate to win it. And, you know, on a hard court, you'd still back her. Uh, I, I think the match I'd really love to see there would be her, Barty, in the final. I think Barty's playing such good tennis this year. I can't remember the last time those two met on a hard court. Um, if they have. I mean, it would have been a while ago. Um, I think that will be really, really interesting to see if Osaka's still the dominant force on a hard court we all thought she is, or whether Barty's all-court game is now good enough to disrupt even Osaka on a hard court. Uh, they played in Beijing in 2019, and Osaka beat Barty in three sets. Just going a little bit off the tennis on Osaka, I saw the the comment or the statement that her team, in inverted commas, had put out the other day asking for discretion and privacy from the press. And I was like, I can't believe that they've brought this back up. Mm. Like, it's not going to happen anyway, is it? Somebody's going to ask or somebody's going to ask a question that's either somebody deems invasive or something. But it's like, how have they not just buried that? It was such a bad... He asked them at the time. It does seem naive, doesn't it? Because, you know, I think every journalist in the room knows what's at stake and knows the deal. I yeah. don't think they needed to. I mean, are they trying to protect against paparazzi and that kind of thing? Although, frankly, in Japanese COVID restrictions, I don't think that's particularly necessary. And would it stop it? Would that stop it if even just by asking, do papar- mm. your paparazzi famously moralistic and ethical in how they operate? Mm. The, the other in- interesting aspect to this is actually her returns coming to a non tour event. This is going to be a very non-tennis journalisty event, which to me probably suggests you're going to get quite a few uh, Rottweilers. Different style news journalists, I would say, who have less skin in the game in terms of you know wanting to keep Osaka and Team Osaka happy. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting to see how that first conference um, unfolds. I suspect there'll be some tougher questions than she would have had if she'd have returned at Wimbledon, for example. I do think they've made, they've really dug their own hole on this one, though, because I, even in things like that, I don't think anyone, I do, I do think she has the capacity to be a superstar. I don't think she was there yet. I don't think anyone outside of tennis really cared for Naomi Osaka before this. And now, every, now you've got Piers Morgan talking about it. I bet he didn't even know who she was before they did that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. Like her, her earnings last year suggest that she does have big reach outside tennis. My girlfriend knew who she was, which I know is really anecdotal and basic, but Hannah doesn't like tennis and she certainly doesn't like particularly sport, but she knew who Naomi Osaka was even before any of it. So you're right, it's kind of thrust her further into the public eye. Frankly, I think in the medium term, I don't think it's done her image a huge amount of harm. I think if anything, it's made her more of an icon. It's given her more of a platform. Uh, so I think it might work out quite well for her. Uh, frankly, lover or hater, I don't think there would be anything bad about Naomi Osaka winning Olympic gold in Japan. It would be no. a huge story. It would be great for tennis. 
you know, I, I know we don't want one one trick ponies in terms of sports, but Naomi Osaka would go from being a big superstar in tennis to certainly in the women's game, the big superstar. Um, with Serena's light fading, I think quicker rather than slower, I would suggest. So I would be quite happy for her to win Olympic gold, especially with what she's clearly been through in the last couple of years. It would be a boost to everyone involved, I would suggest. Let's move on from the Olympics because we're definitely going to talk about them again over the next couple of weeks. I believe the tournament starts, does it start a week today? Is that right? Uh, I mean, the Olympics is only a 12-day event, so it pretty much has to be then. Um, and we will follow it eagerly. We might even do the odd mini-pod during the tournament, depending on how exciting slash how much sleep George and I get. Uh, there was some tennis going on in Europe over the last seven days in this kind of bizarre little gooch of a season. Um, the clay court tennis returned in Hamburg. Uh, Pablo Carreño Busta won a title. Uh, he beat Filip Krajinovic in the final. I, I think that is now six ATP finals for Filip Krajinovic and six defeats. Um, it was quite touching to see the, the crowd in Hamburg really get behind him during his kind of, I, I was going to call it a concession speech, although it's not, it's not really that, is it? It's a sort of loser's speech. Um, it's five ATP finals, I uh, beg your pardon. And he was really emotional about it. And, you know, I think he's someone, George, we've maybe joked about before. Um, you know, is, he's a decent level player, but never going to knock anyone massive out in the early rounds of a slam. Uh, he's probably got a title in him, hasn't he? Yeah, I'd say so. I think, was it the Paris Masters he reached one year? Yes, he did. Was um, that not the year Jack Sock won it? Possibly. <laughs> yes, I would tend to discount that year for a number of reasons. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I think Krajinovic is pretty solid tour pro. I mean, there's not many matches I watch of his where I think, oh, this guy's kind of wasting his time. I think he, I think he's a good level player. I'd compare him kind of to Norrie in terms of he's someone. I think he has been top thirty. Uh, he will have been top thirty yeah. after that Paris Masters final. Been like top twenty five probably. Um, I don't see him being a top ten player, but I think he's someone who will kind of permanently be hanging around. 40s, 50s, I'd have thought. Mm. Um, and yeah, Corona Buster, pretty tough guy to play on clay, isn't he? Um, mm. I think he's a tough guy on almost any service. You know, he hits it quite hard, quite flat, gets a lot of balls back, just an unpleasant bloke to kind of come up against. Not just an unpleasant bloke. I, mean, I think he's basically <laughs> fine. Yeah. Um, I, 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 Stefan Sitsipas was playing in that tournament, which is a bizarre decision, isn't it? I mean, Calvin, I, I sometimes think, and you may or may not agree with me, that players overstate the switch between surfaces. You know, they talk about it like you're having to reinvent your own game three times a year. But to go from clay to grass, back to clay, and then back to hard, you know, in Tokyo, it seems a bit odd. Um, clay to hard's not so bad. Um, that's probably the one that players are most comfortable with. Um, they Just because have... the, the type of movement is so similar. It's not really the movement, just the pace of the court, apart from anything else. It gives you a bit more. I mean, clay's a great tool to work on your game on. So unless you're moving into something completely different, which is grass, I suppose, or would be indoor hard, but that doesn't really happen. I'm not sure anything goes clay to indoor hard because of the speed of it. But clay to, I know when we're scheduling, we don't, <clears throat> we tend to not mind clay to hard. Hard to clay is a bit different because. <clears throat> you'll tend to start getting the ball a bit late, that kind of thing. The ball comes, the pace is a little bit slower on the clay, so the ball tends to come through a little bit more. 
um, on a hard court. But yeah, clay to grass is a tough one. Um, but obviously the top top 100 players in the world have to do it um, pretty sharpish every year. So, But nevertheless, I just find it odd to see Stefan Tsitsipas not following. I mean, okay, he's not someone who follows the mould necessarily, George, but it's just like, it's just a weird decision, isn't it, to go and play that tournament? I mean, is it sponsored by one of his big sponsors or what? I think genuinely probably felt he needed a couple of matches. Um, mm. You know, Wimbledon obviously ended very quickly for him. He got loads of matches in the clay, but he didn't play any on the grass before that. So really, he's had one match in about three and a half weeks span before that mm. week. I, I just feel he probably wanted competitive. Yeah. Um, it's not really like an Olympics tune-up per se. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think he necessarily really needed to do that. I'm sure he'd have been absolutely fine, um, but maybe just for his own peace of mind. I think he got a couple of matches and then lost to Kronovic. Is that right? He beat he beat Kerper in the uh, second round, and then yeah, he did uh, lose to Kronovic in three sets. So I suppose he got what he wanted. He of course has headed to the Olympics. He's going to play singles and doubles, presumably. Uh, dare I say, with Petros? Probably. They've been getting enough practice, haven't they? <laughs> There's a great moment in that tournament, though, where he, his entire racket just fell off when he returned. I don't know if you've seen He fell off. Fell off the handle. Yeah, so he hits the return, and the racket just snaps, and he's just left holding the handle. And the, the other bit just completely flew into the stance. Um, quite odd. I think that, although I obviously have a bee in my bonnet about Petros Sitsipas getting wild cards and that kind of thing, but this is, and when people say, you know, what's the problem? Here's the problem now, though, is that Petros Tsitsipas is not the second best doubles player in Greece. Michael Pervorakis is, mm. and he played, and, and um, Stefanos played with him in the ATP Cup. But because Petros and his brother have kept getting ATP wildcards and winning the odd match, as you will do, now Petros' rank, his ranking has gone up, so they can justify him going to things like this. And it's just taking opportunities from other players, which he shouldn't yeah. do. And then yeah, I don't know whether Petros is going to the Olympics because I, he's actually, as we speak, playing um, in a, a futures event in Austria. He won. He won a round in this futures event. Oh, it's qualifiers. It's qualifiers. Calm down. Um, he beat another Greek lad as well. So I don't know what that means. Uh, but I don't know who Stefanos's partner for the doubles will be. Presumably, if it's not Petros, it basically has to be Michael, right? Um, yeah, there's not much else behind that. Yeah, so you you would think so. Although I'm not sure, I'm not entirely sure of the qualification because I know as, as we discussed privately in our group yesterday, I think each country gets. I don't know whether it's a maximum of of two singles players and two doubles pairs. But so the doubles players, be... just having awesome. sorry, just having spoken to Nicole Melashar, the you know the American doubles number one, who was supposed to be playing with Coco Goff, but now has to find a new partner. She didn't know the qualification standards. So she was right. like, she got into the top 10 and then she was like, oh, great, I've sealed my Olympic spot. And they were like, no, no, you still have to get selected. They can leave you out. So I don't, I'm afraid I don't fully understand exactly how it works. It's a maximum of four singles players, but they all have to be ranked within the top yeah. 50 or something, 55, whatever. Um, so, and then you've obviously got the kind of Grand Slam wildcard. Um, but so, I mean, America is a good example, but Goff, obviously there were four very strong Americans. Goff actually, for a while, wasn't going to qualify because yeah. there were four ahead of it, but obviously they were all kind of pulling out anyway. Um, 
yeah, four is your maximum, and then doubles. Doubles, I think, is a maximum of two pairs per discipline, and then the mixed is made up of people who are already there. Yeah. Um, and then that will be worked out by highest ranking, uh, with preference Combined. by the top ten doubles players, I think. But then, right. how how then did Liam Brody qualify? If you have to be the top fifty-five. So I think he's just taking the spot we had by ranking, basically. Right. Okay. Okay. So I think I think that was kind of set in stone by that deadline, and then you right. trade someone in. That that's my assumption anyway. Just to clarify the Greek Olympic situation, only Stefanos and Maria are going, so they're going to play mixed, but they're not going to play men's or women's doubles. So uh, no bees in your bonnet for the moment, Calvin. <laughs> um, elsewhere uh, on the tour in the last seven days, uh, there are titles for Casper Rude in Bastad on the clay, uh, Gabriela Ruza. Uh, won the women's title in Hamburg. Yulia Putin-Seva uh, on clay in Budapest. Tamara Zidansek picked up a title in Lausanne uh, on clay. Apologies for absolute butchering the pronunciation of that, but it is Switzerland, so frankly, it's um, hard enough. I mean, it wasn't the strongest field in the world, although Clara Burrell, my uh, pick for one to watch this year, did reach the final. Uh, I'm not convinced that Zidansek actually played a single uh, seeded player, However, George, you know, she obviously had a real breakthrough at the French Open by reaching the semi-final. Um, she didn't go so well at Wimbledon. I, I think she lost in the first round. I can't exactly remember uh, who to, but kind of proof that that wasn't just a flash in the pan. This is a thing. Yeah, I think she's playing well. Um, I remember speaking to Andreescu for the column she did. She obviously lost her first round in the French Open and... She said, yeah, she was playing top 10 level when she beat me. And that, that was really close. Obviously, that match went something like 8-6 in the decider. Um, and she backed it up and got a run to the semi. So, yeah, I, I think good for her. She's clearly proving herself to be a big clay court player. Um, massive forehand. Got weapons, which I think can take you quite far in the, the women's game. And, and she's not too old either, is she? I mean, she's... 23, um, George. Middle of the road, so yeah. I mean, I mean, she's not like an eighteen-year-old coming through. So no, 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 that no. hyped about it, but you know, she's one of those players who should be expected to now develop into a decent level player. Um, I don't see why top twenty is beyond her, to be honest. And who knows when you get that high? She's just hit her career high ranking today uh, of number thirty-seven. So um, that's a. Uh... That's good for her, I suppose. Uh, and she will, I don't think she's heading to the Olympics with Slovenia because I don't think she will have snuck into the qualification uh, because, as we discussed, no one understands how that works. Um, I mentioned there were two French Open breakthroughs who proved they've still got it or that they have got it and it's not just flashing the pan. Barbara Krejcikova, <coughs> excuse me, went back to uh, the Czech Republic uh, and picked up a title in Prague. She beat uh, Tamara Martinkova in the final. Uh, not a bad field, really, for what it was. Sinyakova, um, her doubles partner, she beat in the quarterfinal. Um, Zhang Wang as well in the semifinal. Uh, Jin Yu Wang, sorry. Um, so a pretty comfortable victory. I don't think she dropped a set, but uh, nevertheless. Congratulations to her. Um, I think it's good when players have what we consider freak results. And frankly, the, her winning the French Open, I, I think, with the greatest will in the world, was a, a freak result. Um, when they go and back it up on a different surface as well, uh, albeit on her home soil. And she also got to the fourth round of Wimbledon, let's not forget. Yeah, and she, I was just going to say, she, she only lost to Barty at Wimbledon. So, yeah. I mean, certainly wasn't blown away by Barty. Um, so, I, 
I think she can be really, really encouraged. And uh, I, th I think we'll see where her level pans out. But to me, she's playing comfortably top 10 tennis. At the she's, up, she's up to number 11 in the world, which I hadn't quite noticed. Because I'm so used to the, uh, the women's rankings being, uh, to, to use a phrase from Black and about as likely as a Frenchman who lives above a brothel to move. Um, but the uh, it's nice to see her kind of getting reward for for decent results. Yeah, um, and there was hang out now, shouldn't they? The rankings really. I mean, yes, we're getting we're getting to the point. Movement. Yeah, uh, there was one other title winner I haven't mentioned, Kevin Anderson, winning the. Uh, I mean, this is just the week for bizarre tournaments, isn't it? The week after Wimbledon, the Hall of Fame tournament at Newport, which is a sort of country club in Rhode Island, uh, which has a lovely sort of pavilion surrounding the main court. Uh, Kevin Anderson picking up a title on grass there. Must be one of the very few weeks on tour when there are uh, top-level, and I use that phrase sparingly, uh, events on grass, clay, and hard courts. Possibly the only week on tour when that happens. Uh, but some decent wins are there for Kevin Anderson. He beat Ilya Marchenko, Jack Sock, Alexander Bublik as well, and then Jensen Brooksby, uh, who really sounds like a very suitable opponent for a, a final of a tournament held in a country club. Uh, Kevin Anderson beat him 7-6-6-4. Hey, Calvin, this Hall of Fame nonsense, I mean, does anyone take any notice of the International Tennis Hall of Fame? Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Good, excellent, <laughs> we'll move on. Um, I was going to talk about the fact that they've inducted the original nine into the International Tennis Hall of Fame, but given that no one seems to give a shit, I guess we'll just move past it. Um, no, it, it's worth reading, by the way, uh, some stuff about um, the, uh, the original nine's induction. It is a kind of weird that they weren't already in there quite frankly but um yeah that tournament good. actually is is just bizarre it, it, it's gone on for years and years and i don't know how they managed to still keep keeping it as a 250 because it basically never attracts anyone in the top 30 in the world it, it's kind of like a, a glorified challenger event um but it, it's a lovely setting i'm sure but it kind of just gets the the best grass court players in the world who can't really get to the last stages of wimbledon if that makes sense. I mean, does it say it's normally like you normally get like an Isner Apelka sort of lineup there, don't you? Wanting to go back to the States and the mm. kind of massive serving Americans, but not much else. Yeah. Yeah. Very strange indeed. Uh, let's move on. We've got two big debates to get through in the last 25 minutes or so. Uh, let's start since we've just been talking about Newport with the grass. Uh, this is something that kind of came up a few weeks ago uh, in our in our group chat. I think it's been mentioned in uh, in the course of the podcast as well. Uh, and we put it to the listeners uh, over the last couple of days because they are, of course, the best opinion. You are the uh, the best opinion in tennis. It's the only one that really matters. And the listeners have spoken um, quite overwhelmingly uh, in favour of grass court tennis. Uh, we asked whether grass court tennis was worth the hassle. 7% said no, get rid of it. 23% said, yeah, we're okay with the amount of grass court tennis we have, but 69.9% it's actually gone up to uh, now said, yes, we need more of it. Uh, Calvin, perhaps the case for the prosecution should open here. I mean, you, 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 as far as I can tell from the comments underneath this uh, Twitter poll, you think that grass court tennis is largely insane. Yeah, it's uh, it's a nonsense. I mean, for starters, we're not getting any more grass court tournaments. Let's drop that idea. There's, there's no space in the schedule <clears throat> there's no desire for it um so yeah that's not happening we're stuck with what we've got um 
I just find it a ridiculous surface. I, I, I would kind of be more into it. I, I do like that it's a different surface. It's a different look. And I think that's one of the things that tennis has in its favour. We get different looks of courts and it's a different look. I'd be more in favour of it if they were like they used to be, where they're fast. Now all they are are just hard courts with knackered baselines. It's basically what we're looking at. Um, mm. And my main argument with grass court tennis is I don't see how you can have an event, uh, how you can have a serious event with a surface that gets worse as the tournament goes on, where in the final, the surface is, is at its worst. I have a slightly niche uh, but interesting tidbit to share on, on that specific point. Um, so something that Wimbledon don't do is like speed grow the grass during the tournament, if that makes any sense. They don't use heat lamps like you see in football stadiums to help the grass recover. However, if you were walking past court 18 at any point late at night uh, over the two weeks of Wimbledon, which obviously is quite a rare thing to do, you'll notice that it looked a bit like a nightclub because it had this pink glow coming from underneath the covers. And in fact, they were trialling, I can reveal, um, they were trialling uh, heat lamps overnight on court 18, on one of the baselines to try and give a comparison uh, in an effort to help the courts recover. And I think with relatively positive effects, so it might be something that we see a little bit more of. If, Calvin, the, the courts stayed in better condition, would you be more on board with grass court tennis? Yeah, I suppose um, at the professional level. The, the problem is that if you get a hard court that's not played on professionally, it's like the hard court that the professionals play on. If you get a clay court, the same thing. A grass court, you have to have... The grass courts around the country are garbage. Mm. You have to have a groundsman who's working on it 20, 52 weeks of the year. And, and most clubs can't afford that. So that, that's where the problem is with, with the grass courts. But the ones at Wimbledon and famously Queens is probably has probably got the best grass courts in the world. Then they're, they're flat. You can't complain about the bounces too much, although you still do get the odd bad bounce. And there's some problem with the lines this year, I think, wasn't there, where the lines were sticking when the ball landed on it, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, if, if if it didn't deteriorate so much, then I'd be more on board. I don't see how it's possible, really. To, it's a bit different from football, isn't it? Because you get days between the matches yeah. on it, where I'm a bit sceptical as to how much grass you can grow in nine hours overnight, regardless of what kind of lamps you're using. <laughs> George, I mean, you're a big serving robot, so I assume you love grass courts. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'll, I was in the stay the same camp, really. I agree. There's no way there's going to be more in there. Um, I, I like it just as a little different section of the season. And also with my British bias hat on, I think getting rid of grass course tennis means getting rid of Wimbledon. And that would be a really stupid idea from a British tennis perspective because that, that's pretty much funding it. So, um yeah, I like it. I think it's got a, a different feel to the season um, as much as anything. Like, I'm, okay, I, I kind of take the points about the surface. Um, although I'd argue this year that actually the surface was more dangerous right at the start than the end. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. Play, Slip, but... Slipgate feels like a long time ago. But yeah, it was, it was greasy in the early stages because there was too much grass on it. Although having spoken to some, some groundskeeping uh, sources, that they basically rubbished it and said it's basically exactly the same as it is every year. Players haven't played on grass in two years and have forgotten that it gets a bit slippy when it's lush. 
which I'm, I'm largely in favour of calling players out for complaining about surfaces and situations that they've been in before. Um, I actually w- would quite happily see more grass court tennis, and I don't think it's that impossible to kind of manipulate the schedule. Like, we've just had a week where we've had three different surfaces being used across the tour. If there was a little bit, and I'm, I'm kind of making a, a circular argument here, that you need to homogenise the schedule a bit more to give it more variety. By which I mean, if you extended the grass court season by a week, and let's not forget we've had a condensed one this year because the French just do what they want. If you extended it by a week or two and said to other countries, you know, we'll support you in setting up a grass court tournament, countries where the weather's a bit better, because I I think part of the complaint that you get on Twitter is, well, we've got a four-week grass court season it's basically all in the UK where it rains for like 30% of the days. So most of the grass court season doesn't happen properly anyway. What's the point at all? And it happens a lot in cricket with um, Indian fans complaining about playing cricket in England. And actually, if you did have grass court tournaments in, I don't know, the south of France or northern Italy or Switzerland, dare I say, you know, countries with big tennis tournament um, pedigrees, I think you could probably create a grass court season. The thing is, I don't think there's any appetite for it. I don't think there's appetite within the game to create more. I think the players, I don't know, Calvin, you'll know better than me. Do players like the idea of more grass court tennis? Um, I wouldn't say it's anything that's ever really talked about. Um, I guess the thing is, it's a bit of a novelty at the minute. If, say, you had the same amount of grass court tournaments as you had clay and hard, I think probably you'd get a situation like where you get in lower down the levels, challenges, futures. You always get these sort of, there's almost a different circuit going on in like Northern Germany and Scandinavia where you get these huge, the drawers are just full of like six foot six big servers and they never really come out onto anything else. And the other players never really head up there to play anything either. And I think maybe if there was more grass court tournaments, you'd end up having things like that. But it's also difficult, isn't it, to grow grass court, to get any sort of consistency in the surface. If you grew a grass court in Spain, it'd be completely different than the one you grow in Manchester or Switzerland or America. You are, I don't know about completely different. I mean, look, I've not played in Newport, but I would be interested because I think if you use the same blend of grass, you know, I talk a lot about the change from rye grass to perennial rye uh, blend at Wimbledon and, and how much of a difference that made. Uh, which I know people get very excited about and desperately want me to talk more about specific uh, types of seedling and, and grass and filtration rates and things like that. But, uh, you know, just I'll make a specialist podcast for it. It's the only fair way to do it. Um, so I don't know how different they would necessarily be. But, yes, I think I think no change is the most likely solution, however much uh, many of our fans would like my ideas to be implemented on tennis and lots more, I'm sure. Um, my benevolent dictatorship is is in the offing. Uh, we also have another debate to talk about, um, which I think is kind of stemming a bit more from the greater world, from the great Stefanos Tsitsipas, who's swiftly becoming one of the great thinkers in the game, uh, even if we massively disagree with everything that he thinks. Uh, he tweeted uh, on Sunday saying this, coaching on every point should be allowed in tennis. The sport needs to embrace it. We're probably one of the only global sports that doesn't use coaching during play. Make it legal. It's about time the sport takes a big step forward. Now, for context, we should state that Stefano Tsitsipas probably holds the record for the most 
coaching code violations in one single season because Apostolos, his father, spends most of the time um, giving him hand signals that are not remotely subtle or just, just saying advice uh, out loud. George, I think you should start on this. Where are you on coaching? Um, I'm a bit of a flip-flopper on this. I Part of me is very kind of traditionalist. I like the idea of tennis players working it out themselves and whatever. I also think there is a decent argument about would it give others an unfair advantage, particularly at lower levels, if you tried to implement this kind of at every level or whatever? Um, my, my main question is what are we hoping to get out of this? What What's the benefit? You know, I think Moritoglu, who's obviously in Sissipas's camp, he I've spoken to him about this before, <laughs> he's very much like it would bring a new type of fan to the game. It would uh, allow them to see all the tactics that are going on. Um, it would kind of promote coaches and kind of develop a new kind of revenue stream in that sense. I, But to do that, you need to kind of have some structure to how you're going to do this and how it's going to work for broadcast. Now, you can either do that as... So Sismas wants it on every point. Um, I, I don't really see what that changes from a watcher's perspective. If you've just got Apostolos shouting out in Greek or doing some hand signals that aren't permitted that he's doing anyway. Um, so I'm not really sure what that adds to the game. But if you wanted to add this kind of extra layer, which the WTA kind of have, where they allow a kind of coaching break every set. Um, and I'll be honest, some of those were interesting. There was a really famous one with Andrescu when she won where her coach, uh, whose name is evading me now, but they've just split. Um, he came on and gave her a really big speech and it kind of turned the match around. And that, that was kind of an early success story. But against that, it's been gone for the last year because of the pandemic, essentially. And I, I don't think anyone said to me, well, I'll tell you what, the WTA is really missing at the minute. It's those coaching breaks. Um, I'm not sure that's been a conversation either. So... My, I guess I'm kind of going around a lot of different reasons here, but I, I'm not 100% sure it's fair. I'm not 100% sure what it would add to anything. But on the flip side, it's kind of happening anyway. And is it worth kind of players getting fined all the time for it? I don't know. So I'm, I'm a bit kind of in the middle and floating around. You'll be surprised here with splinters in my backside as usual, James. Uh, Calvin, as the only person actually properly qualified to talk about this, we probably should have gone straight to you. But uh, where do you stand on it? I think that we, it should be allowed. I don't really get the argument that, oh, well, tennis is uh, unique and that it doesn't allow it. I don't really get why that's a good thing, really. I don't actually think it would have the, the impact on the matches that some people do. I don't think that... I've, I go on record as saying I think a coach probably has somewhere between 10 and 15% impact on a player. And if it's happening every point, like Sitsipas suggests, then I would say that it's not having any effect at all. I quite like what they do at the next gen with the headphones um, where they can come. I don't know if they can actually go on at every change of ends with that. I'd be wary about it. The argument against it, I'd be wary about it slowing things down. Um, I'm also very cautious in that the thing, the problem that you have with tennis and it's the same, this is where the same came in with, with Hawkeye, I guess, is that you have to implement it as regularly as possible. You can't just have it on show courts at the Grand Slams. And now we've got a stage where it's at most tournaments, but it's not at Challenger, it's not Futures. So basically you've got different rules at the higher tournaments than you have at the lower tournaments. And 
not all players can afford to have a coach traveling with them. If you go around futures, probably 60% of the players don't have a coach with them. Mm. Um, and the players that do have a coach with them tend to be funded by governing bodies. So you'd then get a situation where the better players and the more wealthy players have an advantage over the guys who haven't. And I don't really like that idea. So fundamentally, I think you should be allowed to coach. Um, and I do think I'm, I'm loath to agree with Patrick Muratoglu, but I do think it would add something <laughs> to the dynamic of it. If you look at just sort of just from a personality point of view, you look at football and how football managers bring something to it. You look at Mourinho, Klopp, Guardiola, they bring something to it that footballers themselves don't bring because they're, they're usually quite boring. Um, but bringing sort of coaching personality into it is a good idea, but I can see the drawback as well. I'm, I err on that I'd like to see it allowed, yeah. I think the, the personality bit is the bit that draws me in the most, and I kind of like the idea actually of them being sat down on the benches almost kind of in the kind of, you know, how they have in the Labour Cup. I think that actually does add something in that kind of dynamic where they react on the court, go over the top, you can you can imagine the scenes kind of actually in terms of like a broadcast selling way like you know when Wenger like booted a bottle and got sent into the stands you know it kind of adds this extra dynamic yeah. extra human element. Yeah, God so God that, help God help the umpires having to yeah. ma- having to having to manage two like massively egotistical tennis players and then what is worse two massively egotistical tennis coaches again in the kind of post-match stuff, actually the idea of a coach then coming in for a broadcast interview when they've had an on-court row with another coach, these are kind of added human elements who aren't as invested in having to focus on every single point to win it. They, you know, I, I don't know. I think there, there is definitely something to that. Um, I, again, I just, I think the idea of it being every point, as Sissipas says, is a bit problematic in terms of, as Calvin pointed out there, they're kind of slowing it down. I'd kind of prefer a kind of every changeover approach, but with them reacting on court and getting more camera shots of them kind of getting mental, that's kind of fine. Um, that's, you can control that. Like the, the game is already controlled by a clock that runs basically for the whole match because yeah. it now runs between points as well as on changeovers. As long as you stick by that and that is policed properly, I don't think it slows the game down. I just think it creates so much more entertainment. You know, the best moments of football over the last two years, when you can hear the players talking to each other and you can hear what the managers are saying to their players, it's fascinating. You get so much more of an insight. I think the counter-argument will be all, you want players to work things out on their own and it's a real struggle of that. Who cares? I don't care if the players are worth... Like, half of them can't anyway, so, you know, let them let them coach. As Calvin says, it's only 10 15%. It's so much more entertaining to watch. What would... The only thing I'd say in it as well, though, is that when... What, what people don't get with this and what players don't get is that coaches, we're not geniuses. And sometimes when, when I've done tournaments where you can go and coach the players, sort of the team events, the players you'll often get, they're looking like they're losing, say, six love, two love. And they're looking up at you going like, you know, why aren't you giving me any advice? It's like <laughs> the other players just way better than you. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get like, it happened a lot when you got the WTA ones. There's a lot of bluffers on that tour. And they feel like they have to say something, so they'll just waffle. But that the waffle can be entertaining as well. Yeah, I think I think it's a massive missed opportunity not not to have players. Um, Mark Pecci, who obviously was Andy Murray's coach and is now sort of Andy Murray's coach again to a certain extent, um, he was on Twitter talking about it. He said basically in tennis, 
people say that we should have on-court coaching because they see it as a way to fill the dead air in sport rather than address how to get rid of the dead air. I don't think that's true necessarily. I think tennis, the pace of the match on TV is quite good. I just think you're creating more opportunities for viral, exciting content. Um, he also makes the point that a lot of the coaching is often not in the native language of the tournament. Partly true, but, you know, boxing, uh, very often the corner is in Spanish. And if you watch American broadcasts of boxing, they will have a live translator whose job is pretty much just to translate the coach talking to his fighter in the corner. And, and again, it's fascinating when you hear boxing coaches talking to, to their, their fighter. I mean, I can't think of a single sport, to come back to Tsitsipas's first point, finally, I can't think of another sport where coaching is banned. I know in rowing, certainly at uh, amateur level, you can't coach from the bank, if you like. Like, you're not allowed to shout specific things at people, but that's quite niche, I suppose. I can't think of any mainstream sport where coaching is illegal. Either of you? No, there isn't. No, I think I think it is probably the only one. Um, you know, even in, in golf, you have a caddy and the, the, who is basically an on-field on coach the whole way around. I mean, I, I'm amazed that more coaches don't caddy, quite frankly. I, I'm always surprised at that. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think it's a, a complete missed opportunity for some really good content. I think the fact that WTA do it and that the ATP see... I mean, frankly... George, what match were we watching at Wimbledon where I kept saying to you, I can't believe he hasn't got a coaching violation yet? I can't, I can't specifically remember who it was now. Yeah, no, I've, I've compl- it probably was Apostolos, but that's probably, my doubles, probably the doubles match that I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only tournament this year that I've not had a coaching violation for. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, I think that is probably all we've got time for uh, on this occasion. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. As always, please do leave us a rating and a review and make sure you follow us on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod. Uh, stay safe and in the best way you possibly can on what the UK is calling Freedom Day, go and enjoy yourself. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.